Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Recently, we did an episode titled The Problem of Immortality, where we talked a little bit about uh, humanity's fear of death and how a quest for some form of immortality permeates just about everything we do as a species and as a civilization. So it seemed like a really good idea to, to cover reincarnation in, a, in its own episode. And so that's what we're talking about today, reincarnation, which uh, here in the Western world uh, is kind of a slightly different animal than it is in the East. But it's, uh, but it's still an idea that uh, you find pretty in worldviews around the world. And, uh, and has a certain amount of, uh, well, let's just say truthiness to it, uh, to borrow a word from Stephen Colbert. A lot of people find <laughs> something in reincarnation that jives with their worldview. Okay, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking that reincarnation, at least on a symbolic level, it couldn't help but work itself into the human psyche, given that nature performs a sort of reincarnation at the molecular level every single day. Right. And at the most basic level, we are informed by nature in the physical world around us. And I was thinking about Bern Heinrich. He is the author from Life Everlasting, the Animal Way of Death. And he says, we come from life and we are the conduit into other life. We come from and return to incomparably amazing plants and animals. Even while we are alive, our wastes are recycled directly into beetles, grass and trees, which are further recycled into bees, butterflies and onto flycatchers, finches and hawks and back into grass and on into deer, cows, goats, and us. And he even goes on to say that you could have a decaying elephant or an Arctic poppy's molecules, which might have been released into the air the previous day, but they all came from plants and animals that lived millions of years ago. And he says all of life is linked through a physical exchange on the cellular level. So that is a that's a deep, ancient trope being played out in the drama of nature before our very eyes. So it makes sense that we would, as humans, look to that cyclical nature and and somehow involve it in our somewhat linear timelines that we have set out as humans. Yeah, in fact, that's one of the reasons that, uh, the, that Plato, the uh, famous philosopher, uh, looked around in the natural world and, and and thought that uh, reincarnation jived with what he was seeing. He saw he saw cycles and opposites in nature as being one of the uh, the, the the leading arguments for reincarnation. Like you say, you see these cycles all around you, and then if we were to try and imagine things uh, of the of the unseen world, we mm-hmm. tend to uh, attribute similar shapes and similar cycles to those energies as well. Yeah, in reincarnation, and just to backtrack a little bit to immortality, it really does fulfill that um, immortality narrative Mm -hmm. that is so important for humans. It does three things. It helps to manage that terror we sometimes feel when we realize that our lives are ephemeral and fleeting. The second thing is it provides a blueprint for acceptable behavior, which we'll talk about more Mm -hmm. uh, while on Earth. And three, it extends that assurance of immortality that you'll live on in some way. Now, reincarnation goes by other names as well. You might know it as uh, transmigration of the soul or metempsychosis. Uh, 
But the idea, again, is truly ancient. You look back to Africa, the birthplace of humanity, you'll find reincarnation uh, traditions such as that of uh, the West African uh, Vodun religion. And uh, given the migrations of early man, the, the next great homeland of the humanity is, of course, the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see the, the, the most famous model of re- reincarnation emerge and come to dominate Eastern cultures. Uh, so... Really, you have to start with Hinduism. And just to give a quick refresher on Hinduism, it's the oldest of the dominant world religions and arguably the most difficult to summarize. Okay, its its roots stretch back a good 5,000 years through human history. And along the way, you find all of these it's varied texts, uh, poetic epics, uh, different sects, different uh, diversions, gods, goddesses, religious rituals, and all of it comes into this uh this this form that is really difficult to nail down. Uh, Hinduism is kind of a, a just a, a chasm that uh, that uh, that dives down through human history. A lot of ideas wrapped up in it. Yeah, at the at the very basic level, though, we're talking about something called samsara, which is a chain of births and deaths linked by reincarnation. And controlling samsara is the law of karma. So Hindus believe that all individuals accumulate karma over a given uh, course of a lifetime, and then good actions create good karma, and evil actions create negative karma. And by the way, we have a wonderful article by Sarah Dowdy called How Reincarnation Works, and it goes a bit more into this. Yeah, and the uh, the wheel of samsara is often used as a visual reminder of how of how this system works in Hinduism and Buddhism. We have a, a cool interactive version of that in the article about Tibetan sky burial on the website. But in essence, it's a big wheel, like a big pizza. It's gripped by a big <laughs> monster, uh, generally called a yama, and yama is uh, the the embodiment of impermanence and death. This big demon, and he's he's holding this giant pizza chart that has uh, has these different uh, uh, states of being that a soul may travel through as it's reincarnated, and those include uh, a human realm, the realm that we're in now. It includes an animal realm. It includes uh, lower realms where you'll see hungry ghosts, where you'll see raging demons, as well as higher realms where you'll see demigods and gods. It kind of reminds me of a board game. Like yeah. your dice may land on, you know, an, an angry god or, uh, or a creature. Yeah, it's kind of shoots and ladders. Imagine it's it, really it, it is it is shoots and ladders as a model of existence. Except it's a, it's a game of shoots and ladders that never ends. All right, uh, and and even when a game of shoots and ladders in, ends, it's a pretty tedious game to play. And that's sort of the whole point uh, in in Hinduism and Buddhism is that the game is tiresome. The game is just going to be ups and downs uh, just forever unless you stop playing it. And that's ultimately what what uh, the goal of uh, of Hinduism and Buddhism is to free yourself from that from that game altogether. To free yourself from the cycle, uh, the endless cycle of death and rebirth and reincarnation into various forms. And that creates that blueprint of behavior for your time here on Earth that we talked about, which is so important to the immortality narrative. Yeah, we come back to this string of karma, this idea that uh, that no matter what form you're in, there is something there that uh, that is immortal. There is this uh, this string, this thread that continues uh, throughout it. Uh, and you can just you know think of it as the human soul, as some sort of soul energy. Uh, that's the the general idea here, and it's uh, it's it's the piece on the board of shoots and ladders. That's going up. That's going down. And eventually, you want to remove from the board altogether. Now. In shoots and ladders, of course, it's just luck if you're going up or down. But in reincarnation, that's driven by karma. Uh, there is the there is, of course, a, a moral uh, um, aspect to all of this. Um, how you act in this life depends on where you'll be in the next. 
and the life after that, and the life after that. Yeah, and this interpretation of reincarnation really varies widely depending on the philosophy or the religion. In fact, in Native American culture, it is a feature. Uh, reincarnation is in it. Uh, it makes sense here, if you ask me, because you really see that reincarnation is central to the belief in the connectedness, the continuity, and the interdependence of all life in some Native American cultures. And for the Northern Arthopascan Dene Thaw, the soul, I think this is really interesting the, interesting, the soul is regarded as a dual entity. The soul is believed to remain in the afterworld and can be prayed to. And at the same time, it exists in the human form of the reincarnate, reincarnated individual, also known as those made again. So you've got one foot here mm-hmm. in the present and one foot in the past. Yes, reincarnation often sort of bleeds over into these other I- ideas of, say, for instance, uh, ancestor worship, uh, or or at least uh, um, holding up the ancestor as an extremely important part of not mm-hmm. only the past but the present. And in that, you see some of these models of reincarnation are more of a, a family model of reincarnation. People are reincarnated within the bloodline. And, of course, that makes a lot of sense because we know how genetics work. We know how, how genes are passed on from one uh, generation to the next. So, in a sense, there is something uh, in your grandfather that's living on uh, in this bloodline. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, on the same note, you also find uh, mythic reincarnation, the idea that gods are reborn as kings and uh, other important uh, you know, figures. And, and in this, we see a lot of uh, cyclical time and archetypes. We've talked a, a, a lot before about how uh, when you look at this older model of time, before linear time, mm-hmm. um, Everything was a cycle, and independent individual moments, and even individuals, were only important insofar as as how they uh, recaptured some sort of archetype from the past. Because in some ways, these are delusions, right? So mm-hmm. if you claim that a pharaoh is, you are reincarnate yeah. of a pharaoh, then you are trying to assume that pharaoh's power. And I'm thinking about Saddam Hussein, who claimed to have been the reincarnation of a Babylonian king, and we see this. You know, not just in present day, but throughout history, people claiming to have these sort of powers of these um, very important ancestors or historical figures throughout time. Yeah, and you always hear about uh, the king that somebody was in their past life. People tend not to focus on the... Um uh, the, you know, the, the street bum or the, uh, or, or the, or, or some sort of a, a war criminal or anything of that nature or just right. a common goat herd. But, you know, that makes sense. If you want to fasten your, yourself to some, uh, you know, imagined figure in the past, you want to choose something inspiring, I guess. But, um, and that kind of falls into another version of reincarnation you, you find, sort of a, especially in the West, a kind of casual, feel-good reincarnation, where we just kind of, just a quick pat on the back to say, hey, maybe when I die, I'm going to be reborn as an eagle. Maybe when you don't die, maybe you're reincarnated as uh, as this plant or this person. And it's just, there's not even like any kind of real religion or worldview or structure to the idea. It's just sort of a, a comforting possible notion. A whimsical reincarnation. Yeah. But nothing could be further from the idea of karmic reincarnation that we've discussed uh, so far. You know, that, it, because this is serious business. This is about uh, for, for the for the practitioner of Buddhism or Hinduism. Mm-hmm. This is about where I'm going to land in the next life, avoiding some sort of hellish reincarnation, yeah. and also eventually freeing myself from the cycle altogether. So it's not just a, a you know a pat on the back. It's mm-hmm. it's considered serious business. That's right. It's very rich in rituals. 
and steps are to be taken. It's not just the, as you say, the casual association with if I do this one good deed, perhaps I will not be a cockroach in the next life. Yeah, I mean, the Tibetan Book of the Dead is all about uh, the steps that one can take as this traveling soul, as this psychonaut, and the steps that your uh, your the, 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 your survivors can take to help guide you through that gray area into the next life. It's 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 a dangerous voyage for the practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. And then there's one more version of reincarnation, one more take on it that's, uh, that, that has a lot of luster to it, and that's kind of a, a metaphoric interpretation, okay? This is the idea that, that, uh, idea that Buddhist reincarnation is not a literal model of rebirth through various forms in a karmic cycle, but rather a model for our moment-to-moment reincarnation. And, and I, I tend to really like this interpretation. It's the idea that instead of, oh, if you leave a, lead a peaceful human life, then maybe you'll have more peace in the next moment, or if you have a sort of an out-of-control, uh, lavish, demigod life, uh, then your next life might see you cast down into the hells. But rather, what am I? how do I feel right now? Am I peaceful now? Well, then that means in the next moment I may be peaceful uh, as well. If I am sort of, uh, if I'm on one end of the, the pendulum now, if I'm, you know, angry, then maybe I'll swing back to something a little more uh, reasonable in the next. It's about about that moment-to-moment change in our, our psyche and in, and in the way we're experiencing the world around us. I like that. I like that sense that if you're tending your own garden at that very moment, yeah. then you're also converging on the all points of time, past, present, and future. Yeah. And that, that tending of that garden now reaps its rewards, metaphorically, throughout this ripple of time. Yeah, the, Alan Watts put it really well. He said that, Okay, look at a flame. A flame is a process and not a thing. He said, it said every human being is also a process, just as a flame is a conversion of wax into gas. Uh, because who are you, right? The, at any given moment, you're a, a different person than, than who you were uh, five minutes ago, a month ago, a year ago. We're perpetually tra- changing. We're, we're just this, this vast storm of ideas and memories and, and, uh, and interpretations of the world around us. And so that, that changes all the time. And we talked a little bit about that in the problem of immortality mm-hmm. and, and as well as in our episodes on hell. Like who, who's judged? Uh, when it comes to heaven and hell, the person you are now, the person you were when you die, it, it, it really gets problematic when you look at it. It gets problematic even when you look at it uh, in, in terms of, um, of crime and punishment here in the, the real world. Like how what happens when you judge somebody for a crime they committed uh, 10 years ago? Is this the same person that committed that crime? I was thinking about this the other day. I thought, you know, so much of life is about routinization, about habits, and mm-hmm. about how, you know, you do wake up and you do feel maybe a little bit different from the person you were the day before. And the things that keep us the person that we are are, are those uh, cages of habit that we create around us, those cues that, oh, yeah, my name is Julie. I live in this house. These are the things that surround me. This, these are the associations that I have in this world. If all of those cues fell away, would you be that same person? So, so again, metaphoric interpretation of uh, reincarnation is very much the idea that the person I am now is reincarnating into the person I'm going to be a second from now and a second from from there and and on and on through the course of your life. Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about a little bit more about ancestral reincarnation Mm -hmm. and something called the persistence of personality, or PP. All right, we're back, and indeed, this is going to be the uh, segment of the episode where we 
get into uh, a little more of the, the skeptical views of reincarnation and indeed what happens when science gets involved. And science is involved. In fact, in 2012, a $5 million grant was awarded to UC, University of California, Riverside, to study immortality, including reincarnation and resurrection by the John Templeton Foundation. Uh-huh. So that's really interesting. And just a side note, uh, one of the things that they want to try to figure out are near-death experiences. Because culturally, say in the United States, it's very different from Japan. Because in the United States, we have the old trope of you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Whereas in Japan, it's that people are seen tending a garden. Huh. Which plays into this idea of, well... How much of it is just this mental construct that we play into? Is there any sort of way that we can get to it scientifically and figure out if there's a basis to reincarnation? Yeah, because that, that brings to mind episodes we've done about um, alien encounters and uh, abduction experiences and ghost uh, ghost encounters and any kind of paranormal experience one might have. The the At, at the core of it, there might be something similar but a lot of it seems to be based on the cultural script you're bringing into the experience. Mm-hmm. So you're experiencing uh, sleep paralysis, a very real uh, condition. But then what kind of uh, myth do you lay on top of it? What kind of religion do you lay on top of it? What kind of uh, you know cultural sci-fi reference do you lay on top of it to interpret the, the, the this otherworldly experience. Right. You're you're sleeping, you're in a dream, you are paralyzed and you're starting to wake and your your mm-hmm. brain is confused about what state to be in. Maybe there's some sort of green light emanating from the hallway. You know, that becomes interpreted into, as you say, the cultural script that's put before us. Yeah. And so that's very much a part of the scientific analysis of reincarnation as well. Now when we talk about studying reincarnation, obviously there's very little that science can do to study reincarnation. Uh, reincarnation largely exists as an idea outside of the observable universe, outside of, uh, of science. It's, uh, it, it's like trying to scientifically prove the existence of God. It, it can't be done. It's not a provable thing. Right. It's a matter of uh, faith and worldview and all that. Uh, so it, it's the same thing with reincarnation. The, the studies that we look at tend to be based in interviews. Mm-hmm with children, with their parents, uh, rigorous note-taking, and then trying to to compare uh, different experiences and different accounts of, of not only this life, but the life before. Yeah, Dr. Ian Stevenson, an academic psychiatrist, led the study of reincarnation in the U.S. until his death in 2007. And he founded the Division of Personality Studies under the University of Virginia's Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences. He conducted thousands of interviews. And as you say, he took Rigorous notes. Um, and his studies focus really on young children, usually between the ages of two and five, who had inexplicable phobias or detailed memories about a previous life as reported by the parent. Right. Yeah. And these cases generally, generally they broke down about like this. Like, here's the kid. Again, some sort of weird phobia. They're afraid of uh, buses or something, you know. Yeah. Or they're suddenly talking about Ron all the time. Well, who's Ron? There's no Ron in the immediate family. Why is Ron such a character in this three-year-old's life? And then you start uh, you start comparing notes, and you find out, oh well, uh, there's a family uh, in the next town, and uh, and 
and uh, this uh, this woman died, and her husband's name was Ron. Or here's this uh, this case uh, just a, 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 like a few streets over where somebody was hit by a car, and so maybe that explains the phobia. It's the idea that the soul has moved on from one body to another, and in doing so has brought over at least uh, some aspect of that previous personality enough to carry over a severe phobia or a severe or a uh, or a significant attachment to another person. You know, we're doing uh, our next podcast episode on the illusion of continuity, and I just realized the overlap here, because if you have all of these details, and we already know that our brains are, are pattern recognition machines, mm-hmm. it can't help but seize on these details and say, yeah. ah, yeah, four or five kilometers away, there was a, a girl who died in a rice paddy uh, when she was eight years old. And perhaps it's that girl's soul reincarnated into this other little girl who's having these uh, very serious phobias of water and drowning. Yeah. Stevenson studied about uh, 2,500 different cases over the course of about four decades. He published several books and articles about it. Really, it's a it's an intimidating amount of information that he put together. Uh, and, and it's and it's all all of it is coming down to individual cases where they went out and analyzed it. They talked to the parents. They they talked to the child. And uh, at the end of it, though, you ultimately have this this huge mass of information that science largely rejects because again. It's it's just based in it's it's more like a police case really mm-hmm. than anything. It's more about about uh, just asking people and comparing accounts of a situation rather than than any kind of actual scientific investigation. And we'll get to why that process is flawed in a moment. But I wanted to mention someone named Jim Tucker. He is mm-hmm. a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, who really picked up where Stevenson left off. And he and uh, I believe this was the interview with PBS. He mm-hmm. yeah. he uh, he said this about reincarnation. He said some leading scientists in the past, like Max Planck, who's the father of quantum theory, said that he viewed consciousness as fundamental and that matter was derived from it. So in that case, it would mean that consciousness would not necessarily be dependent on a physical brain in order to survive and could continue after the physical brain and after the body dies. In these cases, it seems, at least on the face of it, that a consciousness has then become attached to a new brain and has shown up as past life memories. And then he goes on to say, I think these cases contribute to the body of evidence that consciousness, at least in some circumstances, can survive the death of the body, that life after death isn't necessarily just a fantasy or something to be considered on faith, but can be approached in an analytical way, and the idea can be judged on its own merits. That's pretty. That's a heavy statement. That is. Uh, it goes right into the mind-body problem that we uh, discussed in some past episodes. The idea that we have this physical brain and then we have this mind, and when we, when we compare the two, they don't seem to match up. Uh, you know, one to one. So we come into to all these uh, various theories, these uh, philosophical models for what the relationship is. Is the is the mind merely the shadow cast by the brain, or does the uh, does the mind exist independently of the brain. Uh, and that's the, the, the case that uh, Tucker is making here. The idea that, that the mind doesn't need a physical brain in order to exist, but perhaps uh, is like this sort of psychic energy ghost that merely haunts and inhabits physical brains. Like the physical brain is a little hotel room that nature has prepared for this uh, visiting 
nugget of soul energy, if you will. The problem, of course, is this runs counter to Occam's razor, right? This yeah. is not the, the simplest explanation. Right. You're building an, an increasingly <laughs> elaborate explanation for the metaphysics of, uh, of an immortal soul. And it's fascinating. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very cool. I, I really like the idea. But, but yeah, you're creating something that's more complex than the, than the immediate answer. And again, it's nothing you can prove. It's nothing that can be scientifically studied. It is, it, ultimately, Tucker, uh, is having to accept this as an article of personal faith, just like any other model, uh, that one might assume of what happens to an immortal soul, uh, after death or before it. Yeah, I mean, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right. and it's just not showing up. There's compelling, there's interesting evidence, I guess if you can mm-hmm. call it that, with you know those 2,500 interviews. Um, but I believe out of those 2,500 interviews, only 20 of them have written accounts by the parents immediately afterward. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, be- because <laughs> because when you have only 20 cases where the parents uh, wrote the record before the match was made, that means... You only have 20 cases where the uh, where, where the information was not yet corrupted by the match. Indeed, this cuts right to the fallible nature of memory uh, and our, our tendency to to rewrite and reinterpret uh, our memories in light of new evidence. Um, for instance, uh, the the child is talking about an imaginary friend named Ron. Um, if if you are telling the investigator about Ron after you found out about the uh, uh, the Ron whose wife died in a, a neighboring city, then mm-hmm. that potentially colors the story that you give the in, the uh, interrogator. Not to mention that that child might have been watching Parks and Rec. Yeah, well, and been watching Ron. I, I do keep imagining Ron Swanson and all. I this, do too. Yeah. The mustache hero of Parks and Rec. Now, these ideas were explored a little bit more in Mary Roach's spook. Um, she has a chapter on this. I believe the chapter is called You Again. And she goes to India where um, these sort of narratives, these reincarnation narratives are somewhat common. I mean, at least uh, if, in comparison to the United States. And she says that by the time the researcher arrives on the scene, the family has usually found a likely candidate for the child's former incarnation. Most Indian villagers accept reincarnation as fact, and word of a child remembering a past life uh, travels quickly to neighboring villages. Yeah, so on one hand, you have the pre-existing cultural script for what is happening and why the child is talking about Ron. Mm-hmm. And then by the time the, the investigator gets there, they've already begun to, uh, to piece together the story, to form their own answer of what's happening and, uh, and, and where this uh, particular soul has come from. And, uh, and that's just going to color everything that they pass on to, uh, to, the, uh, in, to the interrogator. Yeah, and even if it was written down, we know that memory is fallible. And I will tell you, just as completely anecdotal, but, you know, I write down a lot of things that my daughter says. Mm-hmm. And even right that split second after she says it, I, I go and I grab a pen. I will write it down, and then I will read it back to her and say, did you say this? And she'll say, no, I said this. Because huh. I I have inadvertently rearranged some of the words, or, you know, or in it. And when you once you do that, you know that you have changed the context of a sentence. So that's in a split second. Can you imagine trying to get that trickle of babble that comes out of toddlers and make sense of it? You know, five minutes after the fact. Yeah, like uh, uh my son will suddenly start off singing this little song, and he's kind of going mingo, mingo, mingo. But we eventually started interpreting it as mango mango and now it's the mango mango song uh which is is all pointless but again where you just instantly start forming taking what they've given you 
and forming it into something that makes a little more narrative sense. And as um, Dr. Uh, Kitri uh, S. Rawat, that's the uh, director of International Center for Survival and Reincarnation Research, that Mary Roach uh, uh, spoke with mm-hmm. um, in uh, in her uh, research for Spook, uh, that the parents will latch on to almost anything. Like any little little bit. Again, we, we, we crave synchronicity in life. We look for our pattern recognizing brains, look for those little, uh, you know, one or two, uh, uh, bits of light that match up, not all the other ones that are out of place. So, you know, the mention of the name Ron, the mention of fear of automobiles, whatever. They'll take that, they'll run with it, they'll shape that without even really having, without having any kind of mischief in mind. Uh, they'll, they'll form the, uh, the, They'll form a story that fits everything. They'll they'll edit it into a shape that uh, that works in, in, with reincarnation. Which makes sense again if culturally this is a part of the fabric. Mm-hmm. And if your kid is is reincarnated, does that make your child special? You know, is this this something that in a family that feels very special? Oh, my child's reincarnated. He or she is an old soul. Yeah. Does that give you a higher position among your neighbors? Well, I mean, as a parent, one of the things you inevitably fear and, and think about is what happens if my child dies, right? Mm-hmm. And you're by by strengthening their bond to a, a a life before this one, you're of course also uh, strengthening the existence of a life beyond this one. So you're kind of answering uh, one question uh, with another one, you know? You know, that's kind of interesting because that terror management system that we talked about Mm -hmm. in the immortality problem really, I think, strikes at those ages between two and five. At least it did for me as a parent where you you get to age two with your child and you've gotten past the I have a baby and I'm kind of you've got sleep deprivation. But now I have a toddler and it almost feels like you have to create an even bigger swaddle around your your child to protect him or her. And this idea that it's not just getting your child to age two and age five and age seven. You're going to be worrying about your child age 40, age 80, especially if you're, I don't know, 120 at that point, um, for the rest of your life. So yeah. I wonder if psychologically it's fertile ground, those ages two to five to ascribe this sort of reincarnation narrative to a child in that culture. Yeah, and the the other big thing, too, is, of course, that, uh, you know, I've already alluded to this, but young children, age two to five, uh, here in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the West, tend to uh, have a uh, proclivity for imaginary friends. We did a whole episode on imaginary friends in the past, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll try and push that back up, back out on uh, social media and on the website uh, when this uh, episode publishes. But kids are already bringing in unreal personalities into their uh, imaginative play. They're bringing in Ron, or they're bringing in... Uh, uh, d- didn't you say that your daughter had an imaginary she, friend? I stopped counting after eight, but <laughs> she has a couple now, twins that terrorize the house, um, that show up. And then one that she dropped about six months ago, and her name was Delta, and she mm. could see her in the mirror. And Delta lived in an abandoned house on, an, on our street. And so that, of course, would kind of freak me out sometimes. But then I realized that our faucet is a Delta faucet. Oh. Um, And that was the mirror that she was looking in. You know, she was looking at the faucet while she was looking at the mirror. So anyway, again, you can, it's very easy for us to start to throw some of this stuff together and and create these narratives. Yeah. And as Dr. Rawat points out in Mary Roach's spook, uh, in the West, we're likely to just look at these cases to, to hear about Ron or Delta and, and just see it for what it 
is, right? Mm-hmm. To say, oh, well, it's just an imaginary friend and dismiss it. But in the East, where there is, a, especially in, in India, where there's this cultural script of reincarnation, uh, parents are more likely to not only say, hey, that's reincarnation, uh, clearly that's a sign of a past life, they're likely to encourage it, to to nurture the child's story into something that, that fits uh, the reincarnation script even more. To say, oh, did you say Ron, or do you mean uh, Ren? Because we know a Ren right. uh, died, a uh, Ren uh, had a wife die in the, the neighboring city, or what, what have you. You know, they'll they'll begin to mold it, begin to edit it again into something that fits the story. And Mingo Mingo becomes Mango Mango because your, I have mangoes. Your I know son what those hears are. Mango, yeah. and then it becomes Mango for him. Exactly right, the Mingo Mango. So these are just all examples of uh, the problems with any kind of quote-unquote, scientific exploration of reincarnation. There's nothing about it you can actually prove in terms of the the transfer of soul energy from one being to another. And when it comes to these interviews with parents and children, they're they're, they're just flawed at several different uh, levels. Yeah, the information gathering, the perception of that information. Um, I wanted to go back real quickly to molecular reincarnation because uh, Enrico Uvo, who was writing for Science 2.0, has a really interesting bit to say about it, just to kind of close out some of our thoughts on this. He says, We sit to eat molecules that were once part of fish and plants. We become the reincarnation of transient beings. When we drink ions and uncharged atoms, we borrow them and enrich them with nitrogenous compounds. Rivers then flow and oceans ebb with the parts of ourselves that will soon become parts of others. As thinking animals, our molecules orchestrate into neurons and neurotransmitters. Strongly interwoven assemblies of neurons, known as ideas, occasionally emerge. The best of these reincarnate themselves in the minds of others. And like the molecules that make them possible, they outlive the temporary shelters of individuals. Death is simply the final and largest repayment of a molecular debt. But a fair amount of caring and weaving can be done before then. Yeah, there you go. Or, you know, another way to put it is uh, energy cannot be created or destroyed. And mass, uh, you and me included, are just uh, uh, energy uh, and energy transposed into matter. So, on you know, on varying levels, reincarnation makes a lot of sense and uh, and feels very solid and, and is something that uh, appeals to us because we see these cycles in the world around us. But when you shine uh, the, the light of scientific inquiry on it, most of uh, of of the the structure doesn't show up, and what does show up is is highly suspect. And I think it's a homage to how incredibly artistic our brains are, yeah, and what great storytellers we are, and how we survive in this world, which is so complex and throws so many things at us, um, that we can weave these sort of narratives together. Which are actually kind of lovely and, and, and give us a lot of solace. Yeah, yeah, I think reincarnation is is a beautiful idea, and I and I do want to stress, even though we're saying, was, you know, when when you shine science on it, mostly nothing shows up. I don't want anyone to take that the wrong way, because I think an idea like reincarnation, like like various metaphysical ideas about uh, you know what happens to the soul after death, you don't need science to prove that to you that that should be a matter in, in my opinion that should be a matter uh, completely outside of science let science prove the things that science can prove let science be your guide for the observable universe in the natural world and in terms of anything that exists outside of that natural world for you uh, anything else in that worldview um, you know let that uh, sort of float free indeed 
All right. Well, uh, speaking of floating, if you want to float us any ideas or comments about uh, this podcast or uh, any other podcast that we've done or podcasts that we may do in the future, uh, you can find us at all the usual places. Our mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you will find all the podcast episodes, all the videos, all the blog posts, as well as links to our various social media accounts, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, YouTube, SoundCloud, we're on all of those, and who knows what the future will bring. And if you want to send us an old-fashioned email, well, you can do that, too. That's right. All you have to do is address it to BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 